Hi everyone, so quick heads up, this episode does mention suicide as well as domestic abuse, so I just wanted to give you all a heads up up top if those are not topics that you want to listen to a podcast involving, I totally understand. Uh, Go listen to Rachel Royce again, because her life was amazing, and if you're okay with it, uh, then enjoy the episode. Welcome to Pod Avant Garde. I'm Andrea Gazetta. I'm Katrina Davis. And today hey, we Wesley. have with us. Yay! Ow, ow! Yay. Special guest Yay. episode. Jordan is feeling under the weather and she said her voice is not working. And so we have called in the troops. And hey, the troops that was hate. me a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and it's extra rough when I had to record like three podcasts in a week and I was just like, I swear I'm not dying. Like, please, please still join our Patreon. The ghost of Paige joins us from the afterlife. As someone who has ha- uh, had oh, chronic yeah. bronchitis also and listens to yeah. a lot of Paige's podcasts, I was very worried about her a I couple weeks ago. I had a good ago. bout of bronchitis in like five years because my asthma medication be keeping that shit at bay, but like... Yeah, it got oh, me nice. good. Right as we were supposed to be moving. So my dad and my husband were like carrying furniture over my head. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, as you yeah. like wheezed on the we floor underneath them. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. That is incredibly stressful. And you're, like, and you're just like taking breaks in the hallway. Like, let me just not even get one more breath. I was like, I couldn't like, even stand aw. for long periods of time. Like, that's how weak I was for the first couple days. And so I literally, like, I woke up two days later, basically, and he was like, do you want to see your family? They've been here helping us move. They'll meet us at Norm's. <laughs> like, can you come out of the house? Oh, yeah. my goodness. It was bad. Aww. Paige is just the 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 asthmatic kid. From oh, in the wheelchair? The yes. In the wheelchair? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Well, we're still very Thank happy you. for your new home. I'm Peep so the yarn wall. So excited. Hey. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. It's amazing. I'm You actually, your house is indicative of um, a kind of suburban tranquility that our artist Ooh. today was born in. Ooh, <laughs> what a good crossover. Who are we covering today, Katrina? Um... We are talking about a photographer that is near and dear to my heart, Ooh. Nan Golden. Hell I'm yeah! Oh, I'm so excited. I love Nan Golden. Woo! Here's the thing. I love this. I'm so excited. I am so happy Paige is here because I don't know how some of this is going to unfold in terms of naughtiness. I am unfamiliar, like... so I just Googled. <laughs> oh, okay. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I mean... She's out there, but she's a fantastic photographer of the 80s, um, but we will start at the beginning. So Nancy Golden was born September 12th, 1953 in Washington, D.C. to a middle class to middle class Jewish parents and grew up the youngest in a family of two brothers and one older sister in the Boston suburb of Swamp Scott, Massachusetts. That's the name of the (laughs) city. That's a great name. We're starting in Swamp Scott. (laughs) Gay or Mater. He beat. 
That's not what I meant. Gator Mayor. Gator Mayor? Yeah, he Gator beat out Mater? a Florida man for it. Who, like, even though it's in Massachusetts, <laughs> Florida man was like, I seem destined. It's Swamp Scott. It reminds I'm... me of those towns where the mayor <laughs> Yeah, is there's a dog. multiple dog mayors. Yeah, there are. Or an alligator. Um, I was about to say, I feel like someone would definitely make an alligator mayor, but then he would, like, eat someone's dog and dust <laughs> and get... <laughs> And get impeached. I was not oh eating that um, woman. <laughs> Please There's do not. There's just like an arm out of his mouth. I've, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Please do not walk your chihuahuas at the waterfront at dusk. It is our favorite time to feed. <laughs> I am but a mere mortal My gator. opponents have zigged and zagged. <laughs> Which you know is the easiest way to get away from me. <laughs> I'm tough on crime unless it runs in a so, zigzag. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Um, so her father, Hyman Howard Golden, worked uh, in broadcasting. Her daddy's name is Hyman? Oh, no. It is. Probably spelled <laughs> it differently, is. though. And she's At- obsessed with sex. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so Hyman worked as the chief economist for the FCC. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah. Wow. They did not mess around. And Lillian Golden was a stay-at-home mother, but not a very good one. <laughs> she was always out of the um, house. <laughs> so, <laughs> the <awesome>. one requirement. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. No, you'll see why. Um, so this is a quote from Nan. I grew up during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I lived in fear of the atom bomb, and my dad had just recently discovered the black hole. My father was what? confirmed. <laughs> yes. What do you mean he just recently? Dis- I no, thought he worked no, for the no, FCC. No. Like, like he was reading about it. Like he was like, hey, did y'all hear <laughs> oh, about this new I black hole like, they found? Like, hey, uh, I just learned to hit it from behind. Uh, just so you know. <laughs> Honestly, if oh that God. was the kind of household Nan grew up in, she would have never oh, All right, all right. Like, That's true. She wish um, if that was the kind of black hole her dad was discovering, it probably would have been a lot easier on a lot <laughs> and everyone. Um, also, imagine your parents. Actually, my parents were pretty explicit about sex. Um, I know more than I ever want to about their lives. But yeah, imagine like knowing that about your parents. Like, mm, Mine were not. Is this how I turned out normal? <laughs> there- no. It probably yeah. is. There is a certain level of honesty about sex that does not deter you in a way that's yes. gross, but it's so natural to you that you're not particularly intrigued by it. And I do think my mom was kind of that way where I was like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Like, uh, okay. And then people would do stuff. I was like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. And I'm barely interested. Like, yes. yes. No, exa- that is kind of what happened is I was like, this is, who cares? I, last night... I was hanging out with a group of artists and some of my coworkers at the gallery I work at. And one of the artists was like, yeah, why are women's bras so uncomfortable? And I was wearing that like sheer lace thing. That's just basically a bra Mm -hmm. over a bra. And it has like this, the like underwire. And I was like, Oh, do you want to see? And I just lift up my shirt to show them the underwire. And I was like, Oh, I'm just (laughs) flashing my coworkers. I think, it's like please don't call hr yeah. but i didn't i don't care like it's just like uh, my best friend whatever, growing up man. had a family like that yeah. where, where they were very just like we say penis and you're like okay got it yes yup absolutely yeah 
<laughs> that was like, I think, I don't know if I've talked about it on I, this podcast uh, about my um, psych teacher who was very much that woman and aggressively normalized, not circumcising uh, penises. Hell yeah. By talking about how she didn't circumcise her son oh, no. who was in school with us. And so oh, he would no. just be like, oh, are you on the unit where everyone talks about my <laughs> unit? Great, 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 great. Like he was Thanks, so Mom. he was so desensitized to it, though. Oh. Yeah, like he just didn't. That care. is yeah, tough, rough. though. Like, it's one thing if it's like, it's fine to not circumcise people. It's another thing to be like this, this one. one. He's and not. He was just like, Mom. And she was like, it's beautiful. And he was like, I can't. Oh, my God. In this, this house, woman. we say dick and balls. Um, yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> So funny. Um, but, yeah, so her parents were basically like that, but oh, with no. the world ending. So, oh, no. In, so in, in addition to learning um, new knowledge about the black hole, her father was also a confirmed atheist and was very honest about his Bleak. view of the world. <laughs> Quote, yeah, exactly. Quote, I started painting when I was about 10. The first thing I painted was the apocalypse, oh but in God. Kandinsky colors. What would that look like? I know. I was intrigued when I heard that because she was talking about like artists that she saw around because um, she also had um, an aunt and uncle that were very involved in the communist party and sent would send her like flyers and pamphlets and give her information about all that. So she was looking at that artwork and just talking about all of the things she was taking in at a young age. Um, and it came out as an apocalyptic. Hey, painting, controversial which, statement. Yeah, I want I that. Amazing. Yes. But then you're just like, it's the apocalypse. I swear. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, here's the thing: it doesn't not look apocalyptic. Right. Like somehow, um, yeah, it's chaotic. I get it. Uh, so, what I was kind of alluding to earlier, Nan's family embody uh, the idea of a uh, suburban life. She said, "Don't let the neighbors see." Wasn't a suggestion in my family. It was something my mom said out loud, which to me was like, "Don't wow, let the neighbors uh, see what." Uh, just anything right no like, anything. <laughs> literally anything negative like the idea of anything that isn't I mm, something that would be presentable to the outside world to them would ever be presented and she kind of says that was the idea that they thought but she says everyone knew everyone heard people screaming every like the name what she what the illusion that her mom was trying to maintain did not work at all but she thought Wait, are you saying that her dad was abusive no so um Golden had early exposure to tense family relationships. Her parents were constantly fighting about her older sister, Barbara. My sister taught me about the deadening grip of suburbia. She had a wildness about her. Although Nan cites her sister, Barbara, as uh, nurture, the nurturing maternal figure her mother couldn't be, she also remembers her be often being sent away as a child. Um, and later, that Barbara? Barbara yes. Bush. No. <laughs> <laughs> The oh Bush was a was a mis, uh, a chosen name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so she says that um, her older sister kind of bathed her and comforted. She remembers her doing a lot of things that her mom 
just was not able to do for yeah. reasons that we'll describe or describe that I'll explain later. Um, but kind of was a maternal figure, even though she was going away for large stints at a time that um, just for reference, Nan is about like eight, nine, ten, and Barbara is like 14, 15, 16. Um, and they're sending her away to what Nan would later discover was orphan orphanages and mental institutions. Um, Barbara knew she was queer and it was a constant point of contention in the golden household. Cause mind you, this is early sixties. That's horrible. After, yeah. After years of common at the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Like she found a lot of, um, documentation later which is when like as an adult she found her name on like the uh, log for an orphanage which made her really sad because she was like wow I thought they were like electroshocking her and they straight up just tried to give her away but the people in the mental institutions literally wrote down like Barbara's queer she has these like conflicting um, issues with her feelings but she knows what they are um, Mrs. Golden is the real problem and we feel that she should be the person that's institutionalized. Like one of the, wow. <laughs> one of Barbara's evaluations actually cites her mother as being the problem. That's amazing. Um, that's actually really progressive for the time. Right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like Barbara was super intelligent and I think that that may have potentially when these people were speaking to her being like, this teen isn't out of her mind you know what i mean like um so and i'll kind of explain further why i feel like she was so intelligent uh after years of struggling just to be accepted golden sister barbara died by suicide when she was 18 oh Oh, so she was actually a little bit older 16 17 18 and nan was 8, 9, mm. 11. Oh um, my God. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. It, oh, so this is Nan talking about it. Uh, it was It was 1965. Teenage suicide was a taboo subject. I was very close to her and aware of the forces that led her to choose suicide. I saw the role that her sexuality and its repression played in her destruction. Because of the times, the early 60s, women who were so angry and sexual were frightening. Outside the range of acceptable behavior and beyond control. By the time she was 18, she saw that her only way out was to lie down on the tracks of a commuter train outside of DC. It was an act of immense will. And I I feel like this is so on point to what is happening right now with like trans children and trans rights is people just fully do not understand that the danger is in not accepting people when they tell you who they are, when they're mm-hmm. literally not hurting you, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. this is just so anyway, um, I know. Sorry. Yeah. So in, in Barbara's purse that she laid down by the train tracks, there was a quote from the heart of darkness that said, droll thing life is that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope for is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late, a crop of undistinguishable regrets. Which I think Damn. also kind of speaks to what you were saying, Andrea, yeah, yeah. which is just like finding this one thing about yourself and then having such a, you know, dissonance with it because I, of how people are not accepting it around you. 
I think that there is something like that I specifically am going through in therapy, which is called defectiveness thinking. And it is the belief that we put on ourselves when our caregivers are unable to love us unconditionally, which is that there must be something wrong with us. Mm. And when you are queer and your parents choose not to accept that because they phys- they don't know how to love you in an open and conditionless way mm-hmm. um it just creates all of these extra obstacles and that's part of what leads to the suicide it's not like queer people are messed up it's that not being accepted gives you this belief that there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't be here right because it doesn't uh, add up after a while yeah like, you're exactly. trying to figure it out yeah exactly yeah um, so that is that's what's so hard is that like you just carry that around with you like oh there must yep. be something wrong with yeah. me if yep. no one can love me as i mm-hmm. am you know so um after her sister's death nan began to smoke marijuana and date an older man like like within a (laughs) week like she literally like some older dude basically took advantage of a crying high 12 year old Um, she's 12 well because she was 11 when she passed away and she was a god So within a week, she had experienced both great loss and pain and was also, quote, awakened to intense sexual excitement. That's a quote from um, Valid. Yeah. So that dude was a pedophile for sure. Right. How old is this dude? I could not find any information other than um, it was after her sister died, before she left for school, and it was very close to after Barbara's passing. So she was 12, like I said, because... Um, she left home when she was 13, um, around 13 or 14 and enrolled in the Satya community school in Lincoln, Massachusetts, which would mm. change the course of her entire life. Was it like um, a boarding she, school? No, this is like a hippie commune school because Ooh. quote, I got thrown out of every home and every school that I ever lived in. A psychiatrist told me my parent, uh, a psychiatrist told my parents that if I stayed there, I'd kill myself like my sister. Jesus. I landed in a hippie free school that couldn't throw me out and it saved my life. Uh, I only Aww. escaped because of my friends. So in 1968, through a Polaroid camera program for the students at her progressive school, Nan was given her first camera at the age of 15 and never stopped. Photography was always a way to walk through fear. It gave me a reason to be there. Um, Nan suffered from crippling shyness. There mm-hmm. were six months where I didn't speak at all. My sister's death silenced me until I met David. He was a vision to me. David Armstrong was her classmate at Satya Community School who would become a photographer as well and a lifelong friend. We met each other shoplifting steaks. Uh- <laughs> 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 it was because oh, he's got the meats, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of. So I brought him out and he named we and he named me Nan. We liberated each other. David was the eye of my storm. Oh wait, what was her born name? Nancy. But he Nancy. called oh, okay. her Nan. I so see. She, I no see. one ever calls her Nancy. Like, yeah, yeah, everywhere you see her name Nan. Um, but she uh David is kind of indicative of a romance that you will see continue through the course of her life which is she they're super young they're at this school they're kind of floating around and meeting people going to the city doing all these different things and she said at one point they went on a road trip and they were staying in a friend's room 
and he went to bed before her and so she laid down next to him because she had like this crush on him and he just kind of quietly got up and laid on the ground to go to sleep and Mm. it was silent for a beat and she said david are you gay and he and that was how they kind of like became bonded forever Um, of course so Still struggling with her sister's death, Golden used the camera and photography to cherish her relationships with those she photographed. Um, Her first influences included Warhol, Fellini, Jack Smith. Um, She loved Vogue uh, and Helmut Newton. Um, So she met David and that was that. Like he introduced her to all of his friends. She kind of completely submersed herself while living in in downtown Boston at the age of 18. Golden said she quote, fell in love with the drag Queens living with them and um, photographing them. She describes her life as being completely immersed. I lived with them. It was my whole focus, everything I did. That's who I was at the time. And that's who I wanted to be. She met John Waters and Cookie Mueller selling buttons in Provincetown, which was apparently the gay mecca of the 70s. Hell um, yeah. It's still a, a gay it? tourist spot. Yeah. Okay. So, like, there's all of these amazing pictures of, like, it looks very, like, upstate New York. Like, it's, like, there's trees and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful. It looks like an adult camp, summer camp. Like, Aww. And I think that's just the way the town is, though. And it's like everyone like she's there's a picture of Cookie who will matter even more later. But like Cookie's coming up on a bicycle with her like three year old uh, toddler boy on the back. And she met another woman that she fell in love with, Sharon, that she would be with for like a decade. And she's like describing all of these relationships that are forming around her. But you also see so much that man is on that kind of thing she can't bear to be any more a part of it. Like, I feel like that would maybe hurt her too much at this point. Mm, And so she's just loving watching and feeling accepted, but it still all seems very voyeur. Like she doesn't like that word, but like looking from the outside, she doesn't like the word voyeur, but like she's very much kind of the way she talks about it. Especially in the earlier one, she mentions herself so little that it's almost like a reporter and that she but it's people she cares about but she's telling a memoir that she's not yet a a, a part of her own she's story yet kind of making the mm. memories yes she's she, observing the memories she's witnessing and them yes record, recording and, she, and witnessing yeah. yes and so these these become hers too because they're her friends and she loves the relationships around them but none of them are hers yet she's still, yeah you know mm-hmm. yeah she continues to just like make friends take pictures she starts dancing in New Jersey. I danced in New Jersey because you didn't have to take your top off. I was dancing what? to get money to buy film. <laughs> and oh, so this is okay. this is a stripper thing where certain states have different laws. Uh-huh. And it varies state to state. And so some states, you can go full nude. Uh, some, you can only go full nude if there's no alcohol. And some right. are bikini bars where you yep. can't take your bikini off. Yes. Yep. What? Ja- yes. I grew up in a bikini bar town. Um well you grew up in florida so yeah there's a lot of i know a lot about these funny rules but yeah so she um she danced in a bar for a little while but everything she was doing was um just to buy film um and then in one interview which she didn't bring up until more recently but she did um for a while um participate in sex work 
Mm-hmm. So she says, sex work isn't negative in itself, but it's no party. Those were dark times. Um, yeah. She started working at 10 because she was like, I didn't even bring it up. But since people want to make such a stigma about it, I feel like I have to say that, like, yeah, I did that, too. Like, she yeah. kind of brings it up begrudgingly almost. But um, but that kind of led her to a bar called the Tin Pan. So the Tin Pan sounds like I, there probably is like an Amazon Prime that they've like mentioned it in for a second and changed the name of, but it sounds amazing. It's a woman-owned bar where a bunch of ex-sex workers would go basically knowing that it was a safe space. Only women work there. It kind think- of crossed lines. It, they say in her documentary that it kind of exceeded the lines of the new wave. Um, so like new wave was, you know, like a bunch of cool art kids and stuff like that. But Tin Pan was like everyone, like all gender fluidities, races, everyone was welcome there. And it kind That's of awesome. was just this big melting pot run by women. I feel I like every like big city ha- that has an art scene has something like this uh-huh. for it- it's like. For either the LGBTQIA community or for yep. women or for whatever, yep. where it's like, this is a safe space where we can just art till we drop. Yes. Yup. And she says, I really listen to people and they weren't used to that. And I put Nan is the perfect bartender. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> Because she's such an open wound that, like, the way she even describes her photographs is, like, of course she wanted to sit at this bar and listen to all of these sad gays for hours. Yeah, of course. It almost sounds like she was trying to, you know, like, she couldn't save her sister, so she was trying Mm. to save the people that she saw her sister in, you know? That would have been her friends and... mm -hmm. yeah. Like she, so you, right. when you see someone you love in another person, it change. You know what I mean? Like it's hard not yeah. to love them too. Yep. Um, you're so right. So it was after a shift at the Tin Pan that Nan had her first showing of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, just five short years after she took her first photograph. Um, it was a part of a celebration for Frank Zappa's birthday at at the Mud Club, and she documented her immersive adoption into the city's uh, LGBTQIA communities to which she had been introduced by David. So this showing of it sounds so fun because it's, she did this slideshow. It was set to music and everyone was kind of like looking at a live photo album because also this was when you didn't immediately turn around and show someone a photo of them and they approved it. So these were photos that people didn't know she had taken forgot about. So they're watching the Mm -hmm. slideshow set to music. People are screaming, they're crying. People are yelling and booing being like, I don't like that. (laughs) Take it down. Like, and so that's how she got into her editing process. She was like, I never wanted anyone to not like one of the pictures that they had up there. Like I Mm. want, wanted them Mm. to like it it was for them it's their story it's their documentation of that moment I want them to like it um well it's interesting that she wants everyone else to be seen in mm -hmm. a very like real authentic and beautiful way yes when you're behind the camera no one sees you Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like you don't have that same focus on yourself and there you can see in and it honestly is probably in one of the later ones because she keeps editing it and doing mm-hmm. different renditions of uh, 
about of sexual dependency that you do see a lot more of her. There's like a particular birthday party. So that's her and Barbara when she was little and she's basically like, Barbara was the best. I love her. And she taught me to get the get out of the suburbs. Um, and then two is Baby Nan, where I think this is like her bef- kind of starting to come into like self-portraits. Mm-hmm. Is like two and three. But then four is in ballad. These are where I feel like you start to see every once in a while she'll be in the rawness. But you're right. She doesn't look up. Like she doesn't have self portraits till way later, like eye contact. You're right. A lot of that for herself, you kind of see a subtle evolution of now that you bring it up. Um, but for some of the ones of ballad for us to look at, just like the rawness of them, like one of them I love because it just says Dave, it's called David and Butch crying at the Tin Pan Alley. Yeah. And it's just like a dude smiling and a woman, like the way you would smile if you had possibly just finished fighting and you were like it's fine and you just like don't want to talk but like these are the kind of photos like these are some of the first photos I ever saw of hers and I was just like I don't know what's going on but I'm not leaving this room and it was a edit of uh the ballad set to music um so the kissing one is amazing that's an amazing photo right so these and this is also when she started um this was another thing that came from this first edit was she had a picture of someone having sex in there and they asked her to take it out. And she said, that's when I started photographing myself having sex, because if I was going to show other people, I had to show myself too. Mm, um, so that's yeah. another edit that comes um, later on. So yeah. So she's loving this live feedback. The owner of Tin Pan Alley, Maggie Smith was the first person to tell her that her work had a political element. Um, she basically was like, you're showing us living like no one is showing, you know, a P, you know, people kissing and loving and especially the way photography was at the time. It was a lot of black and white. Like it, Maggie was like, this is something basically to her. And she was kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, OK, thanks, boss. Um, well, it's it's also just so like raw and the word I'm looking for is intimate. You know, like photography at this time, I, I took photography when I was in college and you get like a studio lighting. And a lot of people in my classes were photographing like an abandoned building, a cool leaf, my friend in the studio. Mm -hmm. And then I started photo, like I would photograph like my boyfriend when he woke up, like Mm -hmm. I was like, I photograph a lot of people I loved like sleeping, but it was just like mm-hmm. this intimacy that you just don't get. Mm-hmm. And that is weird. Like that was weird to people. It was like, Oh, this is the only thing worth capturing. Like why, mm-hmm. who cares about a leaf? I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like there's something so interesting about intimacy because we're not a part of it and we don't get to see the way that people interact, but to have two gay people at this time, like intimate, that's amazing. Well, no one sees and- that. Right. And this, the, this kiss, uh, it's rise and Monty. It's as rise and Monty kissing. I can't fully tell the, I think this is a straight couple, but I can't fully tell. But to me, it was like, imagine kissing this deep and having someone even stand that close to you. Yes. Like that was my presence of a body. And I'm 
that far back with someone's tongue down my throat. It's like, that is a freedom that this group of people had that would allow mm. her to even capture it. Cause otherwise you would have to be in someone's bedroom and she lived well, in places where they didn't have bedrooms. So like, and- you can hear the shudder like it's not like she snuck up on them like they knew it was happening they were okay with it yep well and when i look at this photo my first thought is they are lost the world outside of that kiss is dead to them very absolutely which like to capture that is amazing yeah and that is one of those moments where if that couple was still together and there the night she showed it she'd be like oh my gosh give me that picture like i didn't know you did that that's amazing yeah Yeah. because i was fully living my life but now i love that that exists exactly so so she continued taking pictures, her every ever growing body of images she used to create the ballad of sexual dependency, which was a title taken from the uh some song from an opera. <laughs> was an evolving series of snapshot style portrayals of amorous or abusive couples, drug addiction, and intimate details of the artist's life. Ordered thematically and set um, into miniature chapters, the slideshows would later share titles and the songs set would later share titles with the songs Golden set them to. Um, and she would later describe it as her diary uh, and a documentation of the people she referred to as her tribe. I was making my own family al- album. So, oh, that's just. Uh, oh, she also in an interview way later when they were talking about what you're saying, Paige, about like being so close to these people and capturing these moments. Um, she goes, I didn't have any courage. I was just narcissistic, I think. <laughs> um, But taking pictures of other people like that's what's wild. But that's oh, also- I guess they said they were like, it was so brave of you to show these like intimate oh, pictures, okay. not knowing what people would think of would them, think. knowing that you took it of them at that time. And she was like, I was just a narcissist. I didn't think I was being brave showing them. Yeah. But also like if people know that you're taking, you know, they know like, Oh, Nan's there with her camera. I think like- this was her presentation mm-hmm. of like, you constantly see me hovering around with this camera. Look what I've been doing with it this yeah. whole time. Well, and that's like in in my life, especially most recent, like two, three years, there have been a lot of occasions where people are like, all right, we're sending you to Texas. And also here's the photographer that follows you around. And so there's just a person. And it's always mm-hmm. fascinating to me what those people pick out where it's like, yeah. gosh, I didn't even remember that. You know, uh-huh. like yeah. I know he, I knew Van was there the whole time, but like I didn't even think about it. Right. Yeah. And that yeah. is, like you said, when it's somebody that is cool and you're just hanging out, but they also mm-hmm. have a camera as opposed to hanging out with a photographer, it does probably yes. create more moments that, like you said, you were too busy living yeah. to notice you were making. I feel well, like oh, one ahead, of the guys, Mitch. oh, sorry. One of the guys, Patrick, literally followed, like he was tasked with just following us the whole time. And so like. We were up until five in the morning eating 7-Eleven pizza and Patrick was just like there with the camera uh-huh, and you just start funny. to forget that other people want to see pictures of that. It's weird. Right. But yeah. 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 For sure. And I can see them too in a beautiful way in what you were saying kind of Andrea earlier, the idea of not being accepted in so many ways, mm-hmm. thinking who would ever want to see that. And mm-hmm. this slideshow is a celebration of you getting ready of dancing with your friends, of you living your life is worth being shown on this board at this party set to music. 
It is yeah. also a good way, like when you feel uncomfortable being yourself in a space and you don't know how to get people to accept you, having yep. a job in that space is yes. really great. Exactly. Yeah. And I found personally that like I stopped taking photos at parties as soon as I felt comfortable being at parties. And I take the most photos when I feel lonely. So most of my photos are me alone on a walk, me taking a photo of me. It's when I have the the frame of mind of like, I don't have anyone to share this moment with and I would like to. Uh-huh. That is when I remember to take a photo. And I right. think that is clear. Like there is a separation and there is a loneliness by setting yourself apart. Mm-hmm. But there is such a desire for belonging. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Agree. So upon. Oh, so she went to Tufts. So in um in 1977 she got her BFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts in Boston and developed a series of black and white images titled The Boston Years. Uh, they were created with the aim of her being a fashion photographer for a uh, fashion photographer for Vogue. That's what she that was her like uh, personal goal at the time. She describes the picture she took during that course as the worst work she's ever done. Um, (laughs) Well, because it's impersonal. It's, it's, you know, it's editorial. It's not just slice of life, which Mm -hmm. I think she really excels at. Right. And she, uh, well, this is where she began to develop the look for which she became noted and switched from the black and white to mostly black and white cibachrome prints um, and moving from natural light to almost an exclusive use of flash. So real quick for anyone that cares, Cibachrome is a dye destruction positive to positive photographic process used for the reproduction of film transparencies or photographic paper. The prints are made on polyester base as opposed to a tradition, as opposed to a, tradi- a traditional paper base. Mm. And since it uses 13 layers of azo dye sealed in a polyester base, the print will not fade, discolor or deteriorate for an extended amount of time. That's impressive as hell for this right. time in yes. terms of a level of technology. And I don't know how true this is still, but Henry Wilhelm rated the process as um, producing prints to which when framed under glass would last for 29 years before the color shifts could be detected. That's impressive. Yeah. This reminds me of some of the photos my grandmother has. Um like family photos and things like professional portraits kind of look like this where it almost looks like they're colored in as opposed to being the real color. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because I remember looking at pictures like that and being like, did they draw over this? What is it? Trying to figure out what was going on. But yeah, this is here. I've got, um, well, I can't share my screen. Uh, there's one, if you look for the national portrait gallery under Cibachrome print, it's a woman in a blue suit. Uh, and it is exactly like if you saw one of these pictures in a relative's house growing up, mm-hmm. that's the one. That, well, that's I, what it is. Also, I thought you were going to say that's my grandmother. I was going to be not. like, oh no. my gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> hella impressed that's why i was i was like about to freak out because that's some shit page would say oh um, no it's not uh but it does cibachrome does tend to exaggerate color producing a highly saturated result which um maximizes the apparent sharpness of the transparency of the film and a kind of glow often yellow or orange which you'll see in um some 
other photos that I'll show you later. It looks very 70s. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, okay. So after graduation, Nan moved to New York and quickly became involved in the downtown new wave scene where she began photographing bars and clubs. She also lived in England for a time from 78 to 79 where she photographed um, punks and skinheads. And... Um, the, some of the photos from London have a different feel. The, the clubs and music were harder, more masculine, more working class, and were a little less artsy, which I agree. Like I tried, yeah. it's so funny cause I was just like numbering them and ended up not, uh, putting them in, but there is a big series of like, just like brute, um, fair-skinned men all in like rolled up sleeve white tees and jeans they all look very uh, like combat boots they all look like they're about to fuck or fight each other it's very (laughs) aggressive um so yeah though you'll see if you see the uh those series i think that some of those are from London. Uh, she began documenting the post-punk world along with the post uh the sub gay the gay subculture of post stonewall uh, she was drawn to uh, the hard drug subculture of the Bowery neighborhood in Lower Manhattan. Um, so, what do you mean hard? What's the hard drug subculture? Needle drugs. All the fun oh. stuff. The fun stuff yeah. that makes you sleepy and disappear oh. for days. Um, yeah. So, oh um, ooh, I do want to say this. It's so funny because I was waiting for this uh, when we were talking about how intimate she is with her subjects earlier, but a lot of people will mention her and Diane Arbus around um, the same time, just in terms of how they photographed people that were different or not necessarily what you would, your go-to subjects at the time for portraits. Um, But Nan actually says in a, um, interview that some of her friends recall being photographed by Diane and kind of felt like she was looking at them or not looking at them as freaks, but made them feel like freaks very much made them feel that she was photographing them as abnormalities and not in a way that like they were friends at all. There Um, is, I I've seen this before and it can feel very like, there, there was a guy who came to my school when I was in art school and he had photographed like essentially like weird people of the country, like mm. a kid with his pet rooster and whatever. And it was very voyeuristic in a mm. way that was not respectful of the humanity of these people, but it mm. was very much like, look how weird they all are. Like, look uh-huh. how strange, look what they uh-huh. think, look how they dress. Uh-huh. And that like, I can see how easily a gay subculture can become that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nan's photos are taken with love because she loves these people. Because they're her friends. Like if you exactly. just come visit for the day and then get your picture and leave, like that's yeah. what it feels like to those people probably, but you were just probably not around to know about it or, you know what I mean? Know how those people felt after. Absolutely. And even Nan kind of says as an artist that, Uh, she was like, there is a coldness to some of Diane's photos that I think both helps, like makes them be as good as they are, but also is probably why some of her subjects felt that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I think of it, not, not to compare it to like stage photography again, but like 
whenever people take pictures of you doing stand-up, there are people who are amazing at it and people who are terrible at it and nothing in between. <laughs> and like the people yes. who are are really good at it somehow manage to capture the feeling in the room in a photograph. And the people who are terrible yes. at it will shoot you from a lower angle and mm-hmm. reveal your multiple chins. <laughs> but it's this, it's this idea of like, they're, they're just taking a picture. They're not really paying attention to, to say, the vibe. That's yes. what it is. And it's because, and even whether or not it's because you're busy or not, I think it is comparable to someone who's like, oh, hold on. I have to go get a picture of this person while they're on stage. As opposed yes, to exactly. people who will go, hey, I've been to so many shows that I know when the punchline's coming on this joke and they're waiting for the right moment to take yeah. a joke yeah. a picture of the audience or you or whatever. And that would be the nan. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I, I fully believe let's call it 10 years from now, we'll be talking about Troy Conrad on something yeah, like Conrad, this. And Andrew he's Max a fucking Levy. master. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Van Corona as well. Yeah. Van has one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken on stage and it was from South by Southwest. So it was like this huge room and he somehow managed to get this perfect angle off stage of me laughing at someone else's joke. Uh-huh. The person telling the joke, not in the photo. Mm-hmm. Not, it is just me laughing around. at a joke about myself. Mm-hmm. Cause he, he caught the vibe. He figured mm-hmm. it out. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing of like my Troy shot my wedding mm-hmm. and I specifically right. asked for black and white candidates for this exact reason. Yes. So I have so many pictures of yep. just, what people were doing at yep. the reception where like I wasn't even there and like I have exactly. this amazing picture of it. Um, but yeah, it's, no, it's you're the right. people who are engaging with the subjects versus just, I'm just here to take pictures. Yes. And I think you can tell when someone's taking a picture of someone that they like, like it feels yes. good when Troy is like, come get a picture. You did so great. Didn't like, yes. he, yeah. like it comes across that he's also like, you know, the last time I saw Troy, it was like I did a show I did not that great I didn't feel like doing my hair so I had my crazy fuzzy hat on and it was like a fucking course Troy's here like of course this is like <laughs> I feel that way all the time and I was just like of course this is like majorly photographable because I could not be less into that and then he was like come on let's go out to the street and like he didn't know I felt like that he there's yeah. no way he could have known but then by the yeah. time the show was over he's like let's go we're like froggering in the wet street and it was just like it became a whole other thing that was just me and Troy taking And then it pictures. looks amazing, right? Yeah. You're like, I felt like I looked terrible and he just I catches the light and you're about like about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it changed the way I attend events, if that makes sense. Where mm-hmm. like I when I when we did South by, I knew I would be on camera a right. lot just right. because like they told us I had a camera. Exactly. So I packed really strategically. I, I have the stylist you know and everything. Up. I know what's up. And every single picture I saw from South by was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I have to always dress cool. <laughs> like, yeah. like it made me think about it. That yeah. is one thing I think that Nan, I think is a second layer when she got older. Absolutely. What you said, Andrea, about just like a or fully submersing herself in people that are like, who was her favorite person and caretaker up until that point in her life. But also 
the visuals later, like the mm-hmm. outfits, like the art that she is appreciating from these people is like watching them get ready. The beauty of them, like here, look, we'll do a couple more because I think the next ballad one, there's one of them dancing at her birthday. It's twisting at my birthday is a great one that I think speaks to what you were saying earlier, Paige, about like moments. And this is also, I think, when you start to see more of Nan come out in a different way where she has on, like, amazing outfits and dyes her hair and has, like, you kind of start to see more of her around this time. But I wanted to show you Ivy wearing a fall. So there's a couple like this that made me think of that beauty that you're talking about. So for our viewers, I'm just going to describe it real quick. It is a trans woman, maybe? I think this is a performer. Yeah, I think this is a performer. Yeah. So this is a drag queen, and they're sort of holding their. It's a sort of a side view of their entire body, and they're only wearing like underwear, like like lame. Yeah, they look like shiny gold lame, like like spandex, demure, like wrapped around yourself, coy, but like the most beautiful, strong face, the most dramatic eye, cheekbones to the fucking heavens yes. and then like a yes. sequin skull cap that goes into a high pony like madonna yes. to wear yes amazing it's really and it's a, it, and even for it to be black and white i feel like you so somehow much see like, color. oh yeah no but uh, yes no you feel like there's color in the room but there isn't uh-huh. but there's also so much like it's like regal in this way that yeah. is like re it's the most it, they're nude pretty much they're just mm-hmm. in their underwear it's incredibly intimate and yet they're so poised and regal in that moment that only someone who cares about them could have captured that mm-hmm. you know yeah. and it's during the day like to be that glam and ready to go mm. and it is like at least it's like at the latest 4 p.m like yeah <laughs> The sun's still out. Really? And, and this is yeah. this is something I also started looking at in her images. The more I look at them, and especially for this, is because they're so candid, the background is just stuff. Like, But sometimes the stuff is so perfect that you're like, how was that not staged? Like, how was <laughs> right. that perfectly crushed Coke can just askew enough and bright red to the size of this woman's green dress? Like, how is this accidental in, yep. like, this clearly neglected like art flop house but like that's kind of the backgrounds that she's using in themselves become something that I was like I like fuck you for this being a real moment in your life but it was (laughs) well it's so interesting too because like in a way this is before social media so people Mm -hmm. aren't really taking photos to share with other people but now she's essentially creating social media and community by exposing everyone's business all the time. Like, this, and this was her doing it the for them. Closer. It's yeah. just like showing these people who were like, you were saying constantly berated. Like they talk about it in one of the documentaries. Um, they couldn't eat. It was literally dangerous for them to go outside like this. Yeah. Like yeah. she would go out with her friend, like her friends going out the way that they wanted to be dressed was a hazard depending on yeah. where they decided to walk in New York that day. So like even the idea that like you getting ready is worth not only documenting and taking a picture of, but like showing the world 
multiple times over because you see her subjects repeat themselves. Like you start to remember like David and Cookie and um, certain queens that she lived with. Like you start to recognize them. And I can't imagine how that would make them feel. You know what I mean? As someone day to day getting like written up tickets yeah. for wearing a wig. Um, it's so embarrassing to like, this is not the same, but I remember in high school I got sent to the office because my shorts were too short. And mm-hmm. it is so, like, embarrassing and sexualizing to, like, shame someone who's literally, like, sorry, my ass is fat and I'm 16. I don't know what to do about this. Jeans can't hold all oh, this yeah. peach, baby. And that was, it was, it was me with titties. That was about <laughs> to say. It and definitely it was, like, was a my body, sh- body. Yep. It was definitely a body shaming for, like you were saying, Paige, any of my friends that were well endowed and were like, it's 90 degrees and there's no AC in the West building. Yep. I'm wearing a tank top like but i mean well something that's way less fun um whenever they killed uh whenever um trayvon martin was murdered in florida they tried Mm -hmm. to make it a rule that you weren't allowed to wear your hood up in the mall what the fuck so i was approached by a security guard and told that i had to take my hood off in the mall and wouldn't and then had my boyfriend kind of take it off for me and he just kind of like left us alone but I was really mad about whether I should have even let that happen or if I should have like I don't know gotten in a fight with a mall cop that day it probably wouldn't have done anything um yeah the well, idea I mean, that probably you probably got gotten tased yeah exactly um, but it's you're right it's the idea that you existing yep in an inert way yes is something you should be ashamed of yes. and it fucking isn't yeah yeah um so though many saw nan's work as groundbreaking the art scene was not particularly supportive of her the men were awful to me in nearly every interview she recounts the male-dominated industry dismissing her saying that her photographs weren't art um and she also said uh in one they were always just talking about their equipment like she's never, <laughs> and they all laugh like the entire art room laughs and she's like but i'm not joking like literally if you talked about photography they did not care about the subject they were always talking about lenses what you used exactly and it's funny because it's still true i know yeah. male photographers now that they freaking spend so much money on like having all these different kinds like she used the same camera until 1990 and then finally switched to a different one like she doesn't care and so but there is also a difference between product photography mm-hmm. and portrait photography mm. and candid photography like those are completely yeah. different realms and i think like, and they're, I have, like, not acknowledging Candid as anything that should be hung. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, like, you just aren't recognizing that the, like, product photography is the illustration of photography. It's doing a job. It's working for you. It's graphic design. Candid is the art thing of, like, mm-hmm. this is the soul. This is connection. Mm-hmm. This is humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's okay that those have their own place. Well, no. And yeah. these were people who called themselves artists. It wasn't like mainstream marketing dudes. It was the photographers of the time saying like my black and white photos of women are art and yours aren't because yeah. they're of women that I don't find attractive or yeah. they're not in stage settings or whatever. Um, But nonetheless, Nan persisted. She went to galleries with her portfolio, and after many rejections, she met uh, met curator Marvin Heiferman. 
She showed up in a party dress and some weird makeup. I had never seen pictures like that in my life. Um, I went to Marvin with these prints and they were totally bad and torn. Um, but he liked my photos and wanted to see more. I came back with a crate and gave the cab driver a blowjob to take me back. So that was my introduction <laughs> into the- and she said, so that was my introduction into the art world. And this, this was is what happens when you don't have lifts. Okay. Dang. Yeah. You got to give them lips when you don't have lifts. Hey, <laughs> gas, grass, or ass. Nobody rides for free. <laughs> um, so she spent the next few years living in New York, taking photos, doing drugs and falling in and out of love with Brian from Tin Pan. So Brian, he's a real piece of work. Um, he looks like it, honestly, like. Sometimes you can get people's essence through a good photograph and she's a great photographer. And you know, so like, I, yo, I get it. I get it. There's so many good, there's a the lot of great ones The energy between them. She has yeah. the Frida Kahlo unibrow kind of going on a little bit. Like it's definitely giving Frida. <laughs> oh, that's her curl. Yeah, I was going to say that's her curls. <laughs> Wait, image 14, right? Yeah. Yeah. He ha- oh, you mean him. Brian yeah, oh, has a Brian has, Brian, has has a Brian has a unibrow no. for sure. Oh, he Brian does. He's has... got the like crow magnon forehead. Oh no. Absolutely. It is it is the it is a very similar shape to Frida's like the little divot in the yeah. middle. Uh-huh. <laughs> he looks like if caveman had an accountant. Yeah, oh my like he's shaved, but you can see yeah. exactly where the the mustache should be for He's sure. the evolution yes. of if that guy um the yeah. campaign would have kept going <laughs> they would have just gotten an account and it would have been brian um, it would have been that guy just accounts receivable good <laughs> accounts payable bad yeah him grunting moment- over a long-term calculator like just oh. like all the ticker tape flying out he doesn't understand what fire sale uh, <laughs> yeah uh the other thing too about this is that she's like the energy between them it's so clear that she's like sitting on his lap and she's like so stoked to be there and he does not give a shit nope like the energy she's giving is like oh my god i love him i hope he likes me and he's like huh girl well also he's probably fucked up Um, yeah he's probably messed up so listen to this our first date we went to see the clash and then we went up to harlem and copped then he just stayed from 81 to 84 so jeez if that gives you an idea of what kind of state Brian may have been in in that photo. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they went through a flurry of drug use, fights, and breakups. Um, and then. Wait, I uh, thought he was gay. No, that's this David. Is Brian, this not is David. Brian. That's this David. Is Brian. Oh, yeah. my God. I mixed them David's up. My amazing. Bad. Okay. No. Um, yeah. No. Her and her and David never did anything. I'm sure David was not fond of Brian. Um, oh, I'm. Yeah. Mm, so yeah. after I think the four to five years of like this back and forth. Um, oh, yeah. 81 to 84. So this is at 84. She did a slideshow um, of ballad in Berlin. And after um, and Brian came so she had been in berlin for a while doing her show brian comes to like visit basically and like try to get back together whatever version of their turmoil they're in at the time because they're both you know in and out of it they didn't know they're very dependent and on drugs together it's not you know healthy on either end so afterwards it's it's what it's what the kids would call a toxic relationship yeah exactly Um, yeah, it's about to max out on toxicity. So Mm. afterwards, after her slideshow, her and Brian went to a bar. 
uh, they ran into a woman that Nan had slept with and Brian became so enraged that they had a huge fight as they often did, but this time it was different. We were so intertwined. We didn't know how to break up. So this was his way of breaking up. Brian, Damn. Beat, Brian beat Nan so badly he broke every bone in her orbital socket. Holy oh shit. Oh my God. One of her friends came in and like dragged her out, but she said she just remembers him just like, she said he kept going for my eyes and they think he was trying to blind her. Is like this he was number mad. 17? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 17. Yeah. Yep. So, all, so. That's the, that's the eye that you used to look through the, the camera holes. That's what she said. Right. So that's what her, she said, I just remember him going for my eyes and her friend said, I think he was trying to blind you. That's yeah. so specifically um, cruel. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And yeah. it is the kind of man, as there's a certain kind of person that when you love them, there is a, people have a fucking scary fuck. Like when you let people in that are, not good they will sometimes use everything against you in a way that is like wow that is truly sadistic like i'm so mad that i want to take the one thing away from you um so her friend came in dragged her out um brian burned her diaries wrote horrible things on all of her walls with lipstick um and then this was another moment that I keep realizing I keep accidentally picking artists that I clearly have some kind of connection to because they say shit like this. But she said, my greatest luck of my life was that I left the slideshow at the loft because he would have destroyed it. Like she's, her eye is hanging and she's like, hell yeah, didn't get the slideshow. (laughs) Like her, was her eye, did it come out? No, no, no. But it, but it was, that is probably like a couple months in there are way gnarlier ones. It's just every capillary is oh, broken. God. It didn't come out, but every capillary is broken. Like oh her eye God. nearly did not function anymore. And oh, she- so you're saying because the bruising hadn't happened yet. Like he had just beat her. So the full like bruising of the eye. No, no, no. I'm saying happened. this one that you're looking at 17. Is it getting better? Yeah. Oh my like god. Like it being blacked yeah. out. It's already healed cuz look that bruise on it's like green a little bit. This is like it getting better. There's one where her eye is straight up like the way it looks like a shark eye right now. Oof. It is like Jesus. you can't see anything. Um so this uh Nan one month after being battered is an iconic image which she uses to reclaim her identity. My pictures of myself being battered are what kept me from going back. Um, women that have been battered have come up to me and told me that they were able to talk about it because of those pictures. Yeah. Um, so something, there's something really scary about being that vulnerable, but it's also really empowering when you are vulnerable in a public way and people tell you like, because of you, I did this. mm -hmm. And you're like, really? Yeah. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. Um, Nan would go on to have selection shown at the Whitney Banal in 1985 and at the Edinburgh and Berlin Film Festivals in 85 and 86, respectively, um, that involved a series of these images that would later be in a book. Um, Golden's interest 
in oh this is just to touch on for later but just because of all of this whirlwind stuff wrapping up with brian um and she's about to go to rehab but um her interest in drugs stemmed from a sort of rebellion against her parental guidance uh she said, I wanted to get high from a really early age. I wanted to be a junkie. That's what intrigued me. Part of the part of it was the Velvet Underground and the beats and all that stuff. But really, I just wanted to be different from my mother as as different from my mother as I could and define myself as far as pop as possible from the suburban life I was brought up in. So damn. You know, yeah. there's a lot of just like her acknowledge because people will later try to condemn her for glamorizing drug use or that era or anything that it looks like through the ballad and she's like no i was also running from something and like yeah. no the reasons that i w wanted to do drugs were not good <laughs> um yeah well also like when you experience that much emotional turmoil the drugs become this way to like feel numb to the oh yeah you're feeling all the absolutely. time absolutely yeah yeah, she definitely cites that um, as, like, being younger and dealing with, yeah, everything. Like, when she talks about, like, even when she started smoking weed, was like, yeah, my sister's gone. I'm bouncing around between all these schools. It's just, like, you just felt a little bit better. Um, you just want to not feel a little uh -huh. bit. Yeah. You're like, I just want to not, I just want to feel nothing instead mm -hmm. of pain all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Oh, there was another there was another screening of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency in 1987 at a festival in France that every time I try to pronounce I sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So <laughs> it's the recante the I swear I listened to it a thousand times and the last word is the it's, it's um, but it's the reconnaissance. If, if you said it for um like American phonic style, it would be rencontres diarless. Oh, diarless. See, thank you. You're welcome. Like that sounds like nothing. If I'm trying to say it, I, like <laughs> no, for sure. When I try to say it, I just kept going and I was like, "That's Arnold Schwarzenegger." Um, <laughs> like okay. Yes, and then yeah, a man okay. was. I was trying to uh, mimic a man saying it. And I was like, "This is not going to go over well." Um, so. Uh, once Nan recovered from the attack, she tried to go back to Tin Pan, but she couldn't be around all those men. Yeah, she, of course. She was snorting dope. Yeah. Um, and then when she quit the bar, she thought, now I'm really going to get strung out because I have, like, nothing. And this is definitely what you were talking about, Andrea, where, like, she's just doing drugs to not feel yeah, fear anything. and terror and, yeah, everything coming back. And loneliness because I feel like people also don't, acknowledge that when you get out of mentally and physically abusive relationships you will still feel really alone so then you're like coming off of being abused and you're regular lonely and it's like well that's kind of how the abuse cycle continues is mm, that yeah you, you get these little gems of connection and yep. acceptance and belonging when yep. they're in the good mood right and so yeah. you're like those little crumbs kind of keep yep. you going through the dysfunction yeah and so you don't feel Just lonely like all the time it's exactly yeah. like cults. That's what they're talking mm -hmm. about all the time. So once she quit the tin pan, she did in fact get fully strung out. Um, by 1988, she had decided to put herself in rehab. Um, she, when but she didn't have a camera, 
And then when she was transferred to a halfway house, she got her camera back and produced a series of intense um, of self portraits hmm. um, taken with available light that I think the one of her 16 rehab, rehab she nan. Looks like a, she looks like a little ghost a little bit. Yep. It's almost yeah. like, so she's sitting on a bed and the bed behind her is in focus and the little cross on the wall is in focus, but she mm. is not in focus mm-hmm. because it's that thing. This is, this is why that is happening. It's because you focus the camera, you put the timer on, you go run into the camera and the camera has focused on the objects that right. were available Already for it there. to focus on. Mm-hmm. So she yeah. almost looks like this ghost that has sort of just landed and mm. she's sort of blurred out a little, but she's kind of defiantly looking into the lens. It's really beautiful. And her head is sort of like turned in this like brave sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is so kind of jarring to see like, the stillness and the like predictability of this like cross and bed in rehab. And then this sort of just like wild ghost flying into frame. And it's funny you say ghost because the, there's another one from this series where she's way, way far away. And it's like, you would take a shot of you in a bathroom mirror, but like super to the side and it's mostly of the bathroom and it's like very blue. And mm-hmm. she looks even more like a ghost in that. Like mm-hmm. a lot of them is, are just, uh yeah the idea of her not really being there um so these pictures together with the other self-portraits um were later put together to form the basis of a slideshow called all by myself um in 1995 and 96 with an eartha kit soundtrack um oh wow when she emerged from rehab, she realized that the tribe she had wrapped around her like a cocoon was slowly withering away, losing battles with addiction or AIDS. Over time, say. yeah, yeah. Over time, her photographs moved from representations of destruct- destructive, youthful abandon to hospital beds and get well soon balloons past their prime. Um, most of her friends from Ballad would be gone by the 1990s. We watched everyone get wiped mm. out, and there was nothing we could do. Um, so witnesses fat vanishing, uh, witnesses colon against our vanishing was Nan's first show that she curated herself at the artist space in Tribeca. She wanted the show to be about AIDS. The exhibition included photographs, drawings, paintings, and sculptures by, um, artists, including, uh, David Warneritz, Jane Dickinson, David Armstrong, her bestie, Greer Langton, um, Mark Morriso, Peter Hujar, and Daryl Ellis and others. Uh, with an accompanying catalog of reproductions of each artist's work and essays um, written by Nan Cookie Mueller and others. The participants participants were all either affected by AIDS or suffering with it themselves, and many of the pieces reflected their views as queer individuals. It was about a loss of the community and trying to keep their legacy alive. But the show hit a snag. Uh, She asked David... Uh, Warnerwitz, dang it, I tried so hard to remember how to say his name too, and now I can't, but I think it's Warnerwitz, uh, to write an essay for the catalog. But I love this man so much, also. Um, like, I listen, like, if you listen to him speak, he's so he's so fantastic. I love him for multiple pieces of art that he's done. Um, but she asked him to write an essay, and says she said she would support whatever he wrote. Uh, when the show the show then had its funding withdrawn by the National Endowment of the Arts because Susan Wyatt, the director of the artist space, cough, narc, cough, cough, called out the religious and political figures for their homophobic. Uh, she like basically was like, "Ooh, this looks like it make might make people mad and brought the pamphlet to the committee to read. And then they were like, yeah, you're right. And pulled their funding. 
What a bitch. That. That's why I said narc. And it's so funny because for it to be this time, like you see Nan and her friends and they're like, not even like fully new wave. Like not like she has on crazy makeup in the interview, but she has like her cool, like crazy red mullet and like a like houndstooth blazer on. And she's like, I just feel like this is censorship. And I don't understand why an art space of all places would even try to have a religious or political view. And then the woman, Susan, that told on her is literally wearing like, a Sears dress that my mom wore for an Olin Mills picture. Like, you know, the old, <laughs> you know, the yes. old dresses that had the lace bib. Yeah. Like oh my the homiest lady. I was like, how did you become in charge of art in the eighties? It was so funny. Um, not There's to judge, so much but that- it was just like, she looked like the most normie norm to ever be like, I like art. And I was just get the fuck out of here. Of course she <laughs> told on their pamphlet. Well, okay, mom. <laughs> yes. She mommed it up so hard. It, at this time, a lot of women who have like positions on councils have those mm. positions because their husbands are rich and they don't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, there is a level of privilege that comes with that position. Oh, that she would is make a them- she's a living cucumber sandwich with the crust cut off. So, what <laughs> you're saying, <laughs> what you're saying, totally adds up. This does have real homeowners association vibes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that, Paige. Um, So the reason that she (laughs) brought it to the National Endowment of the Arts was because David Warneritz called the New York Cardinal or Connor a, quote, fat fucking cannibal in a black skirt. I um, love it. Hey, if the shoe so fits. <laughs> and just for a little background for anyone that doesn't know, um, appointed in 87 by Ronald Reagan, Cardinal O'Connor was appointed to serve on the HIV commission, oh. which enraged the gay community because he was basically against condoms and sex ed. So it seems like a huge joke, which if you want to get even more mad, listen to the dollop on Reagan where they oh, read yeah. how yes. they yeah. did not do anything about the AIDS epidemic for yep. years. And then when they finally did, they appoint a cardinal that doesn't believe in condoms. I would have burned something down. They, oh God, that dollop episode's amazing. But they, mm-hmm. they go through literally, they were laughing. Yes, they are the, literally I, I was, laughing at people dying. So the fact that they did, the fact that they laughed at people dying and made yeah. it a joke about homophobia. And then we're like, okay, we'll give you a commission, but we'll put the head of the Catholic church on it. That thinks yeah. that your lifestyle is a sin and tells people not to use condoms. Like, so yeah. in 89, they had a huge AIDS protest where they had a die in people yelled during mass that your policies are killing people. And someone crushed up a Eucharist and like onto the ground. So a lot of people got Fuck super yeah. pissed that day. And that became a huge divide between like the Catholic church and the gay community and like gay Catholics. Like that was a, that protest was like a big, uh, division moment of division for a lot of gay Catholics in the 80s so that is why Cardinal O'Connor of all people was called out in David's essay Um, but to listen I honestly want everyone to go if you don't even care about Nan go listen to just the part of the um uh the a documentary about Nan and her addiction where it is David on screen you are watching this beautiful gaunt man actively dying from AIDS yelling about how oh do you not like the words that I said like he says um he's like 
in his house being like, yeah, I've gotten a bunch of death cr- threats and calls. I wonder if the Cardinal's going to call me. Like, he, Fucking come at me at di- that point, you right? Could, you could, You're dying. You could yeah. not pay David to give a shit. And it, like, you can tell he doesn't care. So he's in his kitchen. He says, this is good. It means the control of information has a crack in its wall. Is me not having health insurance or access to adequate health care and I'm dying of AIDS in 89 political? You can never depend on mass media to reflect us or our needs or our state of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like, I think what he's saying is like, I'm not just going to be invisible. I'm not going to mm-hmm, just disappear. Yeah. Oh, his for essay no one. makes me want to cry. He so eloquently and angrily phrases how he is so sick of watching his friends die and no one care. He's just like, what? Yeah. What I like? It's uh, I. I'm going to butcher it, but it's basically like. I will drive a, I wish every one of my friends that died drove a hundred miles an hour and flung the corpse onto the steps of the white house. And then yeah. maybe they would care. Like it's so yeah. beautiful. Um, the words the that they cares. try to censor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah. So they had a bunch of protests. Like they finally, I don't think they ever got funding back, but the show still um, went on. So, um, her friend group continued to disintegrate. Um, she documented very closely the passing of her friend Cookie Mueller. Um, and this was one of the moments where I was talking about her kind of looking from the outside because Cookie and Sharon that she met as a couple when she was like 18 were together forever. Then they broke up. Now they're in almost their thirties. Cookie's dying and Sharon comes back. And one of her favorite photos is like cookie in the back, very sick and just Sharon sitting in front of her. And she's like, that's love to me. Like this photo is love. Cause like Sharon hadn't even been around and she came back like, for cookies passing and she said when cookie died i was raging there had to be some way to help her some doctor and then to realize that there was no doctor to call i didn't get it i smashed a wall i was so sad when i realized that the photographs i was taking wouldn't keep people alive yeah um witnesses opened the day after cookie's funeral she died of aids in november 89 and david would follow in 1992 um the 90s continued to be a time of pain and suffering and loss for Nan. Um, no one understands what it was like, the rage and helplessness, and it never stopped. And she says it never stopped because David Armstrong uh, passed away in like 2014, but because of complications. Jeez. So she feels like she's just never stopped losing people from it. Um, yeah. The juxtaposition of this personal loss was met with unprecedented professional success. She was awarded a bunch of awards um people are falling in love with um her work from the 80s she received a fellowship from the national endowment of the arts in 91 the people who wouldn't fucking do uh, wouldn't fund witnesses in 89 gave her a grant in 91 um and then in 90 because people were looking that's why Mm -hmm. yeah that's so real and to think about even a like that shift of Reagan 88 and everyone being the the way AIDS and the gay community was viewed and that shift to 91 even is like a hot like when an art um organization might be like it's like because they would maybe be a little bit ahead of you know other people but they were like oh yeah four years ago we looked real shitty um 
In 94, she published Tokyo Love, a series of images of Japanese youth in collaboration with Nabayoshi Araki, who is kind of controversial, even though he's super famous in Japan, but she kind of just says, like, he was fine. Like, I feel like they're, because he's kind of known for a lot of bondage work that border borders on pornography, and one of his muses has since, since come out and said that she doesn't feel like he really respected her as a muse and more like an object, but their book together is way more Nan. It's way more like kids hanging out. It looks like young love. It doesn't there have There is a one of, of a guy tied shibari style i was but, about to say there's yeah. one of the the kneeling with the heels mm-hmm. yeah and i was like oh there he is um but yeah. people will sometimes ask her about that just about that guy kind of being a creep but she said uh i worked for three months and he worked for two days so i don't know <laughs> if they got to talk that much that's yeah. really funny she said he kept approaching it like i was working for him and i was like no we're doing this together so i feel like mm. the whole collaborative thing was her like maybe just being like okay let him think this is working yeah. however he wants um and then in 95 she made a film for the bbc for her book i'll be your mirror um and it accompanied an exhibition of the same title at the Whitney with a collection of more than 300 pictures that included Nan, her lovers, Brian masturbating, Brian on the toilet. There were uh, the series of her battered photos and cookies last days. Uh, It would go on to show in museums in Amsterdam, Germany and Prague. Um, And then in 96, she did another edit of the ballad of sexual dependency and this is when she says my actual practice is editing everything i do now is from my archives is through the production of slideshows um that i see how the world changes and i always change things it makes it alive um so in 2006 her ex her exhibition chasing a ghost opened in new york and it's the first installation that included moving pictures, uh, a fully narrative score, and a voiceover. So this is her moving into movies more, mm-hmm. which is something that it's so funny because she, in one of the interviews, is like, I didn't think of myself as a photographer until like a couple years ago. Like her entire time, she's been like, these are moving pictures. Like all of these pictures go together and the series is moving, I guess in her mind. Yeah. Um, uh, this work involved a Barbara suicide and how she coped through the production of numerous images and narratives and her work developing into these like cinemas features. In 2014, she published a book of photographs entitled Eden and after that, that focused on the innocence of children. And I feel like she also has spoken to that in a similar thing of what you were saying, Andrea, about, everything that's happening with transgender people and all of that hate. And she sees children as these like innocent aliens of the work of the world. Like she's like, they're not like us. Like they don't have yeah. like, cause she um, people were kind of like, why are you shooting all these kids and you don't have kids? And she's like, some of these kids don't have gender to me. Like they don't have yeah. anything yet. Like she has a niece that lived as a boy for a year when she was 10 and then was a girl again, like the next year. Like she is kind of trying to 
through her photographs show both an innocence and a love of these people as just people. Cause it's like little girls with crazy masks on and like little, Oh yeah. Cause there's some in here. Like there's a little, the one of the kid a... jumping is insane. Yes. To me. Isn't that so yeah. amazing? I was like, how is that kid jumping so it's, high and so far? What are you my jumping head, off of? In my head, it's a bunk bed. Oh, it looks like it something. Oh, it looks yeah. like some bunk bed shit. Like the second or, I saw yeah, it, I was to, like, onto that couch. Yes, yeah. like that looks like a game that he does a lot. Like he knows what's up with that landing. Yeah, there's yeah. a little kid, and he's literally like she caught him in the air, and his legs are fully out, but he's up like above even his own height. So I was yes. like, how did he even get yeah. that high? It looks like, like what is he doing? But even among these kids, I feel like she still has managed to have that intimacy. That looks like man, watch this. Like, because she said some of these kids are kids that are her friends. Like, some of them she knows, some of them she doesn't. Um, But, yeah. Oh, because also the book that came out with her battered pictures and um, um, Brian's photos, her dad and Brian both tried to get stopped. So Brian tried to get it stopped because he was also an actor. Brian was in, like, three movies. He has an IMDb. Oh, shit. Um, And her dad... Um, her dad in true, you know, abusive fashion. No, in true, like everything has to good look good form. Was afraid that the book was trying to blame them for Barbara's suicide. Well, so that's the responsible. Well, you know, it's really, it's really hard. It's so, ah. Uh, it is so emotionally disconnected and weird, but she goes back to her house with her parents and there's a video in ballot in the documentary. It's like a little footage of them dancing, like the way you would literally just shoot your parents trying to be cute. But it's also like the way an old lady would be like a camera's on. Let's show us as a couple. Yeah. But like, she's trying to be her set. Like it looks like the most natural her parents would ever allow themselves to be publicly. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So it still looks yeah, it very does. staged, but it also humanizes them a little bit as knowing that they were, Oh, cause this was the other thing that she learned. She, when she went back, she found the documents of her sister being put in an orphanage, but she also discovered later on that her mom was sexually abused as a child. Mm-hmm. And she feels like once her and her sister became anywhere near pubescent age, she just shut down dealing with them like she was like Mm. i think my mom didn't know how to parent once we started reminding her of herself at an age that trauma happened at yeah 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 she thinks that she just literally couldn't parent daughters because she never even mentions her brothers i don't know if they're just kicking it doing great but like oh she has brothers i didn't even know yeah just two brothers the only time she ever mentions them is she says one of my first memories is i was dressed up in a cowboy outfit and i thought i can do anything my brothers can do that is the only time she ever mentions them i swear to god i have watched hours of this woman talk that's the only time she mentions her brothers um wow but um yeah so they were trying to get it stopped and she said that made the book that much more powerful all these men trying to stop it yeah well Um, she's practicing a radical form of authenticity and so are all the people that she's photographing that her parents will never have access to they'll never be themselves in the world like that and they would never want any part of themselves that was inadvertently you know what i mean like they didn't want photograph they didn't want like quotes of barbara's you know diagnoses put somewhere like they didn't want but oh that's what made me think of it is she makes them read the note that she had in her pocket 
Mm. Or that she had in her purse on the train her back. Purse. And her mom. She goes, I think I still have it. And she goes off camera for a little while. And it's her dad just sitting there. And then her mom comes back and reads it. And she cries. But in a way that, like, you can see they're never going to be able to full. Like, if they fully accepted it, it would break them. They wouldn't be here anymore. You know what it I would. mean? Yeah. Um, but I did. Oh, the, parents. The part of me yeah. that it was kind of, like, I saw so much child in the way that I would also be like, yeah, read that shit. If that was my yeah. sister, like I would absolutely want to watch my parents read that and take that in, even if it's painful. Um, yeah. So, so she's doing all these amazing works. She constantly is putting out books. A lot of it is older things that people just haven't seen yet because she took so many photos. Um, but in 2017, she revealed that she was recovering from an opioid addiction. An, an opioid oh my addiction. God. Oh shit! So That's fucking she, wrong. How she old is she at that point? 2017. Let's see. She was born in '53. Do the math. Okay. So damn. Yeah, so my mom is, a, I think she just turned. She would be 64. Yeah. So, so listen. No, to- no, no. She was born in 53, right? 53, 53 yes. 53, you add 50 plus 10, that's 60 plus Well, she's four. 70 now. 70 now, so when, so. She OD- when she OD'd, she was not young as far as your that's so old to goes. OD. that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying yeah. and live <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what so, girl how so hold on one second i lost my place okay here we go um so in 2014 um she had wrist surgery for tendonitis which is some real ass photographer shit. shit. i've oh, yeah. worked with photographers like feeling triggered as fuck right now <laughs> Yo, Andrea, yes, your arms and your shoulders. Ugh. Yes. Like My body's tool. I haven't been able to work for like three weeks and I'm like, how expensive is this gonna be? This is mm-hmm. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um so she was recovering from a surgery and was given pills. She, Opioids. She quickly yeah. became addicted, oh. increasing her intake, um, and eventually started seeking black market sources. She said, I thought it was dope, so I snorted it, but it was fentanyl. I, oh fuck! I went out and came out and then went out again. No one brought me back. I just came back. She was by herself when she. Owed what me. girl? Oh fuck! Um, and she's she, lucky. Yeah, she's so she said lucky. that. She literally said that. She says I was very lucky to come back on my own. There has she's been, such, and I'm not saying she's badass for like her body coming back, but the way that she like she says that whole sentence, and then she says I was very lucky to come back alone. There is this thing that happens <laughs> in stand-up where people, the, I was not, I didn't know people were doing cocaine. No one told oh, me. Yeah. And then you do stand-up and it's like, why are they in the bathroom all the time? Why is he so yeah. mad now? And then this thing starts to happen where people start when the fentanyl stuff really hit, there are people that just fucking died and you don't hear about it clusters of people Mm -hmm. it's clusters of people but you're not necessarily hearing about it in a news story because they're not famous comedians necessarily but they're people in our community that we know and sometimes you'll hear like oh it was an overdose or fentanyl or something and sometimes it's just they were 30 and no one tells you how they died or why they died or what the fuck happened Mm -hmm. or they they say combination of medications and you're like which ones Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and it's this kind of dirty secret where 
the hidden cost of all of these things where you think like that's not affecting people i know and then suddenly it fucking is right and so she as someone who grew up in this deep drug culture i think also was kind of put into like she talks about it in the documentary where she was like the supply is just incredibly dirty now like yeah i as someone who is acknowledging that there are people that still will take this drug we need to keep them from dying because you know you'll die when you're just trying to like keep yourself from being sick basically if you're already addicted um so when she after she overdosed she started um researching uh oxy in general like a lot of people do in terms of even how addictive addictive it is this that and the other came across the um sackler family oh yeah oh oh did she ever (laughs) is she is nan golden involved in the lawsuit against sackler the sackler family so she started paying Pain stands for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now. It's an activist group that Nan started with her colleagues in response to the opioid crisis, and they're committed to holding the Sacklers specifically responsible for their um, their um, other company, Purdue Pharma, and their accountable role mm-hmm. in America's opioid em- epidemic. So basically, she's doing all this research about what almost killed her, and is like, wait. The family with their name on every other gallery, they're the ones Mm -hmm. making all of the money off of this and was just immediately enraged at the idea, especially I think because of her age in the art world, that like someone would be that close to art and drug use and Mm -hmm. to be a part of that cycle considering how many artists use drugs i think just blew her fucking mind and she refused to have it so um pain quote speaks for the two hundred fifty thousand bodies that no longer can um wow yeah so they've done a lot of different demonstrations oh i fucking love it like i (laughs) I love her so much I loved her before pain. Like I would see images of hers and by themselves on postcards and be like, Oh my God, I love this person and be like, Oh my God, mm-hmm. it's her again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I was watching stuff to research this and just being like, I freaking, I love her so much. I would seriously like, I don't know. She's so amazing. Um, So she would later realize that the Tate, an institution in the UK that has received Sackler money, paid her for one of the 10 copies of the bout of sexual dependency in 2015 when she was a dip, when she was deeply addicted to Oxycontin. She says she spent some of that money on buying black market Oxy as parents, as doctors would no longer prescribe her the drug. So just to hit home exactly what I was saying that enraged her is like, you yeah. literally gave, you paid me money that I used to almost kill myself with the drug that these people made and um that they knew was addictive the yep, addictive and exactly. are profiting from which which they yeah. there are articles that try to cite Nan as oh well she was a huge druggie so she's a bad example of how addictive oxy can be but if anything I think it's an even more telling reason of how addictive it can be because homegirl was doing coke and heroin her whole life 
banging no it out, going yeah, to Berlin, no and her yeah. and a kid that pulls his ACL in soccer can get addicted in the same amount of time. So clearly yeah. it's not, um, I just saw that because there was a, you know, random free article that was like, I don't think that she's the best example. I really don't think this is Purdue Pharma's fault. And I was like, I don't know. Even if it's not, even if hers is not their fault, 249,000 other people are. So So like, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you really want us to subtract that one, we will. Um, Yeah, sure. There's plenty. Yeah. Plenty without that one. So they've organized, they did the one that I love. They have in the documentary, they like show them more close up, but they have like prescription bottles that have fake labels on them that have like you're killing people or whatever they have like the they rain the flyers down at like a timed moment and then have a die-in where they all lay down with their signs on them so they're doing it at all these different galleries basically asking these people to take the Sackler name down off of um their things off of the wings that they've given all this money to um so she threatened withdrawal from a, ret- a retrospective exhibition of her work uh, at the National Portrait Gallery in London, and they opted to not proceed with a one million pound donation from them. Um, okay, they took All right. their wow. name off the wing. I, she's gotten it taken down at a couple different galleries. Um, I think the Louvre is one of the only of the three galleries she's gone to that hasn't taken it down. They took it down at the Met, like. Um, because she is an artist that carries that much weight because these people want to show her work. Yeah. Well, and also I think at this That's point too, amazing. like there's so much evidence of like the Sacklers crimes <laughs> that like you'd be dumb not to take it down at this point. Well, and what she French talks about, but when they start yeah. talking about it with another artist, uh, because the other artist is the person saying, it, she goes, yeah, when Nan told me that she wanted to do this, she was like, am I sacrificing my career? And I said, probably. Because they're used to not winning. But Nan, I think, also doesn't have a full connection to how obsessed people are with her work. Even with what you said earlier, Andrea, about she hates the idea. She opened a whole interview with, like, please do not ever give me credit for Instagram. I hate it. People don't look at photos. It's heartbreaking. It's the death of everything that I love about Mm -hmm. photos. I can't be responsible for this being the way that people live our lives now. Like, that upsets her so much. So it made me laugh at you. That's made really that connection funny. Also, but other yeah. but people make that connection, and she's like, "Please don't, God, let dear God, don't let this be my fault." Hers is, I mean, the way yeah. that she is building yeah. community is different. I think that's very different. Instagram yeah. in its beginning stages, I think, was much more community based, and I think still remains maybe more community based than TikTok. But it has become so commercialized right. that it's as a space, a lot of people are no longer using it for real social connection. Right. Um, or that to show that. work yeah. like that. It wouldn't even be seen. Well, you can't yeah. because of mm-hmm. fucking censorship. Nan mm-hmm. Gold, yeah. there's no censorship in Nan Golden's work. Right. <laughs> well, no, like she could show like even beautiful pictures of people just embracing each other or stuff, but it wouldn't get seen because it's not a video. Like literally mm-hmm. we don't even select to see images like this anymore right now. Um, but yeah, but basically she just like keeps staging protests with pain and they're still going after the Sacklers at the end of their documentary. They do a zoom of 
they're such fucking snakes, dude. They fucking, Purdue Pharma was about to get sued and they said that they didn't have enough money, but they have been secretly siphoning millions of dollars off for like months. They like were, they were on a Zoom. It's so funny. I want one of you, if you do watch it at any point to tell me if I'm right, but one of the Sackler kids is on and they're all older now. So there's yeah. like a lady that basically looks like, a meaner version of Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, like oh back. no, I know who you're talking about because I've seen other documentaries with yes. the Sacklers, and I know exactly yes. who you're talking about. Yes, yes. like yes. super so staunch, like ice, uh, ice cold lady with like slicked gray hair, and then her. It looks like the middle child because he's it's, just this like round faced yeah. brother that like pretended to pout the whole time, but yep. he didn't pout like he was sad about people crying over their 18 year old son Odin. He looked like he was pouting, like all these people look like they're really mad at me. And like, or like these people are ruining my lunch. Yes. I could be yachting. Yes. And the lady oh looked like she didn't care at all. So, like, oh, she's a ghoul. Yo. Like, she, she has sat through like multiple documentaries where she's sitting in these meetings and is just like, I don't see why that's my family's problem. And you're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, what? Yep. So, and they did it with other stuff too, because they did it with, before Oxy, they did it with like, uh, oh, housewives are. <laughs> Hydrocodone. Yeah. yeah. Or like, oh, women are at their yeah. wits end. Like they've been making money this way. Yeah. <laughs> What's so interesting to me about Nan is I think that she just doesn't, she kind of just leads with her heart in everything. Yep. Like she's yep. just like free fall. Fuck it. We ball about everything. And yes. I think she's just like, I've already lost all of the people I've loved. You know, I've lost so many people yeah. that I've loved. Like what else do I have to yep. lose? Yep. And she yeah. just lives her life that's, that way. I, and that's so that's amazing. It's horrible, of, but no, but yeah. I think that's the kind of people I gravitate to and why I respect her so much because in one of the, um, she does a lot of symposiums with like uh, art students. So they'll ask questions. And one of the people asked something to the effect of like, well, what, who do you uh, take pictures of now? Like, what do you do with your time now? And she said, all my friends are dead. Yeah. And yeah. she was just like, everyone that I would make memories now with is dead. So I don't take pictures of people anymore. I take landscapes. And she was like, uh, that's why she was like, even those, the pictures of children were like my friend's children and stuff. But she was like, I have no friends. I don't have, she yeah. was like, the people that I have now in New York that are my family, I love. And I've like come to find even in this second phase of life through pain and through the organization and all that. But like those people, there's so, it's so funny to hear her talk and like, it literally never settles on her. There was an entire auditorium of people there clapping and hanging on her every word. And she's kind of like, I mean, yeah this is really weird like I'll pull why do you need me to pull the mic up because people are here to listen to me talk like not like she's constantly just always in the moment in herself answering everything as crucially honest as she can like that's why I love that Diane Arbus part because the moderator tried to bring it back to like oh well um I think that people just see a similar kind of empathy in your photographs and hers and she said yeah but I'm saying she lacks empathy 
Yeah. Like she tried to cover it up, but she's like, no, but that's the exact opposite of what I just said. And then just no, you don't reset it. She, yes. She trash. Uh, and she, so, you and know. she's so, she says it so stoically that she doesn't ever say it pretentiously. She says it as if, oh, you must have misunderstood me. I was saying the opposite, that she has no empathy. And you can hear people laughing because they're like, God damn it, man. Like she's the yes. best. Um, so yeah, I feel like she approaches every subject like that. Um, and she said, I'm terrified that everything I believe about photography about this work is over because of the computer and easy manipulation of images and its facilities. This work was always about reality, the hard truth, and there was never any artifice. I have always believed that my photographs capture a moment that is real without setting anything up. So that's why she gets upset when people are like, you started Instagram. She's like, I'll bang my head against a wall. Do not ever yeah. tell me that. That makes um, sense. Instagram is such a bastard of like true vulnerability. <laughs> and you know then, what I mean? It's I so know. Cur carefully. And, and she's doing, she's like close to it because of the style of her photos. But I hear right. so many artists say versions of that where it's like, this breaks my heart. I've heard at least three artists in her age bracket say, someone shows me my work on Instagram. I've tried to show someone new work on Instagram and they go, Oh great. And like she said, I tried to show someone something she scanned and went, oh, I saw those. And she said, no, you didn't. Yeah. She goes, you didn't have... look at those. And she was like, yeah, I didn't. She was like, you couldn't have possibly looked at them. And she also yeah. is like, they're too small. It's like she physically thinks That's you the, can't oh, see Oh, on the phone? Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100. She also thinks yes. that, that, which I do agree with that. But I think there's also something to be said about our brains being different. Mm -hmm. Like our well, brains are different started... now. Like in terms people of people started working mm -hmm. small too, more often than I think they used to. I feel I, like so many people work small now. Well, it, the small work is more accessible. It's more purchasable, especially if you're beginning as an artist. But I've started having this problem where as I scale up, the detail in my work per square inch is the same. And I have people, you know, like I'll post a photo of something on Instagram and it's like people like it or whatever. But then they'll see it in person and be like, oh, my this God, this is totally different. Exactly. Yes. Yep. And I'm like, yeah, like I add I'm adding all these like touches that don't you really can't photograph see. well. They're like they change in the light. Yeah. The canvas wraps. It is this sexy object and I love it. And it's carefully crafted. And I'm like, I don't want to take fucking video of me making this thing. Like, please just come look at it because mm -hmm. I'm so proud of it. But it yeah. just yeah. never transfers. Right. I have to take all these close-ups and try and like the video. Yeah, that's it. what I was thinking. Yeah. Yep. And so that's I think where Nan is at is like, I just don't really want to say that this is going to be my new medium and then these last two are just fun because she finally came full circle and did a fashion shoot so this is her shooting i saw that for scanlan and theodore it's like an australian brand but i really like that one of them literally shows no clothes it's just a sofa and feet oh yeah. i love the there's a coyote there's yes! like a model yeah. kind of leaning out and there's clearly like a stuffed coyote in this dingy room and she's looking at the coyote. it's so funny which she has those in her apartment too i think she also has a thing for taxidermy because she has who like, doesn't man tax taxidermy is like, awesome just like taxidermy <laughs> like wolves in her apartment too and then the last one is just one of her you know now-ish uh so, oh, and then I was looking at one of her videos on YouTube and someone that n remembered her 
from back then wrote and said, Nan and I crossed paths frequently back in the other side days and shared a few memorable things. A love of clothes designed by normal Kamali and a close friendship with our beloved Kenny Angelico, a.k.a. Ivy, which Ivy is um, the person in the black and white. Oh, okay. Uh, I took over Kenny's apartment on Myrtle Street and I remember Nan and her posse hitting the daylight on Beacon Hill after owning the night at the infamous Other Side Club. That's where fabulous music, drag shows, and foul-mouthed MC Sylvia Sidney reign supreme. While deeply connected to her friends who were also her her subjects, I regret never making an effort to engage in any meaningful conversation with her. Now, 50 years later, I take great joy and pride in remembering those evolutionary and revolutionary days with the beautiful people in it of which Nan was one. And I do think that's something that like, even when Nan feels so much sadness and hurt for all of the people that are gone, she doesn't know how many people have made it through ODs and everything like her. Like there are people still around that remember like she multiple times is like, we would just go to the Goodwills in the good parts of town because rich ladies would give away Fellini dresses they didn't care about anymore. Like everything that they did. And there's still people that can tell stories like that. And they're on YouTube watching her videos. Um, yeah. Well, she fundamentally changed, I think, how we see gay people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'll never be able to know that, but she definitely changed the way the art world saw yes gay yeah, people yes. and that any kind of life that wasn't polished even because yeah, it seems like yeah. a lot of what they seem so ruffled up about besides it the subjects were just like this isn't set up like this isn't neat and pretty and so even the realness of it i think is something we i wonder how much was appreciated before her yeah absolutely um and then this last quote i have i think the world is horrible but I've realized there's light in the darkness. So I feel gentler and calmer most of the time. And that's the story of Nan Golden. That's amazing, Katrina. Thank you so much (laughs) for, I mean, the way she's such an interesting person, you know, she's amazing. I love her so much. She reminds me of like, even when she is done getting battered and is like, I'm glad my slideshow's gone. Like just this internal, like it made me think of why I loved Marina when she passed out in the fire and she was like, I'm mad I passed out in the fire. Like it always just being about what they wanted to put out and share ultimately. And just Nan still through everything that she's lost and hurt and lived through, you still through the people that she's around in pain, there's like younger queer people, there's older people that are like around her same age that are also artists, but they're all like, Nan, you wield power. And she's like, whatever, let's just write this on the dry erase board. Like she still (laughs) can't, (laughs) she's still like a part of a collective that she, I hope that she can fully bring into her heart. You know what I mean? And like, well, it's like yeah. she's fearless, but she doesn't see herself as better than anyone else. Yes. Yeah. Ever. And that's it. That is the most incredible. It's like when guys are like, I want a girl who's hot, but doesn't know it. It's like, that's Nan, but with fearlessness. Yes. yes. And it comes with an honesty that I think makes her unable to recognize 
because I feel like you watch her in all these interviews and it's all people being like, Nan, you are amazing. Do you realize that people, and she'll be like, wow, look at all these people. Like she, uh, like they said, they said in one of her intros, oh, she sold 10,000 copies of her book. And then when she started talking, she said, how many copies did you say? And she was like, is that true? She was like, oh my gosh, if that's true, that's amazing. Like she's so not connected to how that's amazing That's really funny. And it makes her that much more endearing. But it's like, man, everyone loves you. Like, please absorb how much all of these people love you and don't focus on people on Instagram loving you because a lot of us also love, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 of yeah. course, of course. But yeah, she's the best. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, of Katrina. Course. That was so good. Yeah. Thank you all so much if you listen to this long episode. Paige, thank you so much for hanging oh out with God. us. Oh, yeah. No worries. I this was... is my fourth recording in 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking beast mode over here. Also, I yeah. was super concerned about how heavy this episode was going to be at times and it felt great so thank you i'm uh, hey it feels great because she's alive and kicking it and taking the sackler step yeah, yeah. that's true too Dude, like she's twist. starting a new oh chapter God. this was in yeah. 2000 this has been the past like basically before the pandemic they were, you know, organizing more and getting bigger. It started with like six people. And then she said it was like 30 of them. They were like the Sacklers were paying to have people like look outside Nan's house and stuff. Like they would. They the really. Assholes. And she and she's like, I just died. I just almost died. And all my friends are dead and I don't have anything else to do. I don't know why you're coming after me. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I don't think you're going to stop me. Like. What could you possibly say that could deter me? If, if fentanyl couldn't stop me, what makes right? you think your, luck, your private eye also, is going to do? <laughs> nothing, nothing is more determined than a woman over the age of 65. Because That's like, true. fuck it, right? Can you who imagine? Can, who can judge me? I don't give point? a shit now. <laughs> I know. It's only going to get worse. You. <laughs> like, yeah. It's only yeah. going to get worse. Oh I mean, God. like, dude, right now I, I'm entering crop top summer and I bought a t-shirt that just says honkers. Like, do you want to <laughs> see me when does I it, care less? Does like, it have geese on it? No, it that just had it. rainbow letters. <laughs> that Which made it better because it was just the word yeah. honkers across my honkers. that's almost like, is it an LGBTQ friendly restaurant? Like I who, <laughs> who do knows? they do they have great wings? What's happening at Hawkers? Like the big lots of But I also like cuz I'm going to Japan in like a couple weeks. I'm also packing like a see-through caftan and a bodysuit. So like what's Fuck good? Yes, girl. Like come at me, hoes. Like can you imagine that energy that was left to percolate for another 40 years? Right. Dave like Yeah. She's dangerous, like, devastating. She's like Social norms murdered my sister and I was born of the brashness of drag queens that weren't allowed to live their lives. Yes. I dare you to stop me from doing anything. You would have to kill her. Yes. You would have you, to you kill better. her. You better. Yeah, like the last guy. And then that, she'll probably come back at least for one more round from the dead. The right? last yeah. guy that tried just lost out on publishing rights. Like you can yes. do whatever Damn. the fuck you want to me. Oh, I love Nan. Um, but yeah, she's amazing. If you like this podcast and like listening to us, follow us at uh, Pavant Garde, P O D V A N T G A R D E, 
on um, Instagram and Twitter and our RSS feed that I just reenacted today because it had my card number from when my wallet got lost. Oh no! (laughs) Sorry, Um, that sucks. But yeah, and if you like me as a person, I'm Katrina. I'm the one that talked the most this time. Um, Follow me at Katrina Savad, which is just Davis backwards. And I uh, post comedy shows and buildings that I like. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, if you like me, you can find me on Instagram at Andre Gazetta. You can find me on the internet at andregazetta.com. You can sometimes find me in real life if you follow me and figure out where what show openings I go to. Uh, I don't have anything fancy coming up. But I think I would like to be... I think Van Golden is, like, one of my artist heroes, like, especially Extra Now. Like, it's been Artemisia, ride or die, but Uh, Van is up there in the Pantheon for me now. So, um, yeah, I don't know. If you want to send us anything IRL, our P.O. box is one zero one one no fuck never mind just cut that i don't remember it <laughs> oh no it's fine tie it to a pigeon down. hope it gets hey, here i was about to say guess what i can't do help you at all because I, I don't can't. know it it's on the bulletin board <laughs> over there it's it dark and i'm on these two to six thc to cbd gummies for the intense back pain that has woken me up at 4 a.m every night this week and they're like this won't get you high but it super did that's <laughs> so funny also mm-hmm. this is at least the second time that andrea's gummy is hit at the end of an episode that's Perfect true it's, it's fantastic yeah, it's, it's and, peaking and it's because her eyes shut that's the only reason i know <laughs> yeah i don't know until you mention it but then i'm like oh she yeah does- the slow blink like a cat I do. they're close her eyes are cl- it looks like you're having an allergy attack they're just shut <laughs> it's funny because they're so big too like i have really big eyes so when they're just little tiny slits it does look like yes. when cats are happy <laughs> i love that that makes me happy uh, but oh, yeah we'll put cats. it we'll put it in like the comment or something if you want to send something to andrea's high ass it. if i'm still <laughs> paying for it uh Paige, where can people find you on one of the many podcasts you do <laughs> the streets uh but also uh horror version yes. pod, cult podcast uh ship hits the fan if you like my thoughts but not my voice uh, because I write for that one, but I'm not on it. Katrina uh, and I have both been on Romancing the Pot, I think. I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say yeah. I'm listening to times. the new. I'm listening to the new Romancing the Pod now. I. Li- it's so funny. I haven't made the crossover to Horror Virgin. To Horror Virgin. But I think yeah. it's maybe because I want to watch some of those movies, the romance ones. I'm like, I'll listen to y'all talk through this one. Some <laughs> yeah. of the horror- you'll listen to yeah. us be like, this is toxic. If yes. you are in a relationship like this, run away. But on the horror uh, ones, I was like, oh, the- Hellraiser, I'm ready because I've seen it and I want to oh, listen. Girl, Hellraiser two comes out tomorrow. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's one of my favorite franchises. I yell about it all the time, and normally people don't care. Oh, Todd Todd hates it. He hates it as a it. franchise. We finally got him to kind of enjoy two because it's crazy. Frank! Oh God, I love it. And it, it, and it only gets crazy, yes, right? They're all like, crazy. It's so they're good. all cra- like the first one is nuts, but it's also kind of pretentious, which is why he doesn't like oh, it. Oh, okay. And then it just tumble the snowball tumbles downhill from there. So I'm excited. But yeah, to listen keep to Paige them. talk about movies because I personally do it all the time. It's great. Paige is <laughs> hilarious you, you. at all times, which makes her a fantastic friend and a wonderful podcast hostess. So. <laughs> 
Yes. I am also petty AF though. So if you come to me with dating advice, I'm always just like, <laughs> dump them. Like I'm, I'm Alice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, listen to Paige everywhere. Thank you all so much for listening As to always, this episode. We and have the longest outros of all time because we love each other so much and we never want to say goodbye. Well, no, we love you. this one, we just had this, but I did want to say, I'm going to put link in the, I'm going to put a information in this. If you want to learn more about, pain or what they're doing um, in terms of demonstrations against the Sacklers or learn more about Purdue Pharma or any of that. I'll put that in the comments. That was the only thing I wanted to say, but you're right. We always do it too long. We love you. Love you. (laughs) Bye. 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 Bye.